Beloved John Brown of Haddington was an 18th century Scottish pastor. He was almost entirely self-taught. In his uh, teen years, he was employed as a shepherd. And he taught himself Latin, Greek, and Hebrew by the age of 20 while employed as a shepherd. He also became somewhat familiar with French, Italian, German, Arabic, Syriac, and Ethiopic. After his short career as a shepherd, he moved on and became a traveling merchant for a time. Uh, Then a soldier in the Edinburgh Regiment, and then finally a schoolmaster. And then, at the age of 28, he became a pastor of a church in Haddington, where he served faithfully for some 37 years before he went home to be with the Lord at the age of 65. He was also a professor of divinity for his denomination with a special focus and emphasis on training younger men for the purpose of the ministry. Uh, John Brown, Pastor Brown, preached through the book of Hebrews. And in his final message out of the book of Hebrews, here are some words that he shared with his congregation. Quote, Pastor Brown said, I now close these illustrations of the epistle to the Hebrews. Happier hours than these, which I have spent in composing these expository discourses, I can scarcely expect to spend on this side of the grave. I trust the study of the epistle has not been without some improvement as well as some enjoyment to myself. And I shall rejoice if at last it should be found that others also have been made better and happier by it. Pastor Brown continued, All is now over with the author and his readers, but there remains an improvement to be made and an account to be given. God requires the things which are past, and so should we. Let me request those who have accompanied me thus far to review the whole epistle seriously and ask yourself, do I understand it better and do I feel more strongly influenced and consoled by the influences of the doctrines which it unfolds? Can we say with greater conviction of the truth than formerly, we need a high priest, we have a high priest, and we are well pleased and satisfied with our high priest, Jesus Christ? We have acknowledged Jesus as our high priest. He died for us, therefore we should live for him. If he so calls, we will die for him. Now, if this be the case, even in one individual, I shall not have labored in vain. If it's been the case with a number of individuals, I shall have received a full reward. Beloved, please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. After 16 months, after a beginning on March, I believe it was 13th, 2022, we come to our final message in this magnificent epistle. Beloved, and as we do this, we can ask the question, what does the author, the original author, leave for his audience? More to the point now, what does God leave for you and for me? Beloved, let's hear the word of God for the last time at least in this expository sermon. And I would imagine for at least a few decades at least, should the Lord tarry at this church. Hear the word of God, Hebrews 13 and verse 20. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight 
through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom, if he comes soon, I will see you. Greet all of your leaders and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Beloved, this is the word of the living God that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. So back to the question, what does the author leave with his audience? What does God leave with you and me? Namely, two blessings, a closing benediction and a final exhortation. A closing benediction in the first two verses and a final exhortation in the remaining four. And has been the theme has been the heart of the author, as is the heart of God. Beloved, God wants you to put your trust in his promises and put your life in his hands. Again and always in the immediacy of this day. For your, all your life and into eternity, we trust in him, we believe in him, and we put our faith and hope and life and trust in his hands. Beloved, let's unpack these first two verses, a concluding, a closing benediction. And this benediction, this prayer, this densely packed prayer, this is, these two verses, 20 and 21, are densely packed. It's a brief prayer, but it is rich with power and grace. Even comparatively speaking, in a book that is densely packed with doctrine and truth, these are especially... The author confirms here his standing as a literary genius and a master theologian in this Holy Spirit-inspired formality. And what does he leave us in particular at the end of his letter in this benediction, in this short two-verse prayer, namely five possessions? These are five possessions that we will walk through in these two verses of what you have in Christ. If you are a believer, if you are an adopted daughter or son of God by virtue of your faith alone in Christ alone, this is what you have in Christ. And beloved, we understand that prayers, even just a way of application, even when we think of this short two-verse prayer, we understand that prayers don't have to be long. They can be long, but at the same time, we don't want to die of wordiness. And again, the author here demonstrates his master of the written word with these. The first possession he brings out for us here is, you have in Christ the God of peace. Look at the beginning of verse 20. He says, now the God of peace. Uh, this is similar to, for example, the way the Apostle Paul began to close out his letter that he wrote to the church in Rome. In Romans 15, verse 33, Paul there had similar thoughts. He said, the God of peace be with you all. Amen. When we think of this peace, when we think of God being described as the God of peace, we need to understand what does true biblical peace look like. The world strives for peace. We know even in the Old Testament, there were, for example, false prophets that would cry out, peace, peace, when God tells us there was no peace. So we want to make sure we have a right understanding of peace. And the biblical kind of peace 
in both the Old Testament and the New Testament was not merely an absence of conflict. There is a much richer, much fuller aspect and dimension and vein of the peace. It describes a sense of entire fullness and well-being of salvation. Even if we think of the Hebrew shalom, the well-being, that describes the kind of peace that God is the God of, the God of peace. And this dynamic of God being the God of peace is not new. We may remember back in chapter 7, in Hebrews 7 verse 2, that the author introduced us to Melchizedek, this man that met Abram back in Genesis 14, who we are told by translation of his name, Melchizedek is king of righteousness, and he was also king of Salem, which the author of Hebrews says means the king of peace. So whether we think of God the Father as the God of peace or God the Son as the king of peace, this is, he is the source, the originator of this biblical peace. I have many Muslim friends and Muslim colleagues, and I, when I greet them very often, I will say, Salam alaikum, uh, which literally means peace upon you. To a Muslim, peace is very important. It's a significant dimension of his or her religious system. And I'm just picking Muslim as an example. You could think of many other religions or even people that would say they don't have a religion, again, that would clamor for peace. But by way of contrasting example, when a Muslim talks about peace, he's talking about a wished for, he or she is talking about a wished for or a hoped for peace. That is radically different than the biblical peace, which is a realized peace. It's a peace that has been accomplished. It comes from the Father, and it was accomplished and achieved and realized by the Son, and it is given by the indwelling Holy Spirit. This kind of peace is stated as fact. The kind of peace that you, if you're in Christ, you already have, is stated as fact by God in Philippians 4, 7, where Paul there said, the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's a factual statement that we already have this peace. And at the same time, it's issued as a command. When Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, in Colossians 3, verse 15, he said, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the peace of Christ that you already have be an umpire over your hearts. Guard your hearts, direct your hearts, your imagination, your emotions, and even your actions as well. And what we would take from this possession that the author begins this great benediction, these great closing words with, beloved, is embrace the father of peace. Embrace, embrace your father of peace. Embrace the God of peace. Embrace the king of peace. God the father, God the son. Well, that's the first possession. There's a second possession, and that is the great shepherd. You have in Christ the great shepherd of your souls. Look at the rest of verse 20. The author continues, he says, who brought up the God of peace, brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. It's interesting in this long letter to the Hebrews, this is the first direct reference to the resurrection of Jesus. And it's interesting because we might wonder, we might find it a bit strange. Why would the author wait all the way until the end to have a direct mention to the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Well, 
if we step back and we remember a main thrust of his argument, a main purpose of the letter was to, again, drive home the absolute supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ as our great high priest. That's why the author at earlier portions of the letter made multiple references to his ascension and his coronation and even his present intercession right here, right now on our behalf just as we sang in one of our songs. And I think that's the reason why he waits all the way until the end to make this direct reference to the resurrection. Now, having said that, the fact that he waited to the end, of course, doesn't in any way, shape, or form lessen the importance of the resurrection. Because we understand, the author understands that if Jesus had not been raised from the dead, then there would remain no sacrifice for sin. Without the resurrection of Christ, there is no hope. There is no salvation. There's no gospel. There's no good news. Without the resurrection, the incarnation is pointless and the crucifixion is simply a tragedy. But, but we understand by virtue of the newness of life that God has put into our heart and into our mind, by virtue of him removing the scales of darkness from our eyes, so that we can drink in the riches of his word, we understand that, as the hymn says, living he loved me, dying he saved me. Buried he carried my sins far away. Rising he justified freely forever. One day he's coming, O glorious day, O glorious day. Beloved, the heart of the author, the heart of God, is that the God of peace brought up from the dead, look at the verse the great shepherd of the sheep this is the main point of the second possession the great shepherd of the sheep uh, point main the great pastor of the sheep we could also translate it beloved when we think of all the grand titles of jesus christ i think i mentioned this even when i prayed before we sang the song the lion of judah the king of kings the lord of lord the prince of peace In some ways, is there a sweeter title than the great shepherd of the sheep, the one who cares for your soul? And this motif, this imagery, this pastoral imagery, this shepherd-sheep imagery is throughout the Bible. It's in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. Uh, Psalm 23, one of the great psalms of David, we see God is our shepherd. Uh, Isaiah chapter 40, Ezekiel 34, these are just a few places in the Old Testament that bring out the dynamic that God, the creator, sovereign God of the universe, is our shepherd. And certainly in the New Testament, uh, Jesus gave the parable of the good shepherd in John chapter 10, verses 1 through 18, specifically saying Jesus did in verse 11 of John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Again, this is a tender title, a tender pastoral description of his loving care for you and for me. And we realize that we need a sheep. So there's power and there's meaning in the shepherd and there is meaning in the sheep. You see, see, excuse me, you see sheep are aimless, vulnerable creatures. Sheep desperately need someone to protect them, to guide them, to lead them. They need a shepherd. They're helpless. They can't defend themselves. That's the very same dynamic, for example, the apostle Peter described in 1 Peter 2.5 where he writes, you were 
continually straying like sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Beloved, back to the main point of the author of Hebrews here is since the God of peace has the power to raise the great shepherd of the sheep from the dead, therefore he has the power to keep and to rescue and to protect the weakest of the sheep. That's the point of application God is making here. He has the power to find you, the power to keep you, the power to guard you, and the power to correct you. Beloved, in a word, you have, if you're in Christ, you have a deathless guard and a deathless guide who will lead you and protect you. No attacking wolf can or will prevail. That is the power, that is the blessing of this possession. And beloved, the great shepherd, the wonderful great guardian of your souls leads you to green pastures and still waters. His rod and his staff comfort you. He anoints your head with oil. The God of peace, the great shepherd. There's a third and fourth possession that we see as we continue in our text, and that is namely his imperishable blood and his eternal covenant of the great shepherd. And one can reasonably ask, going back even to the title of God and the gift of the peace of God, how can sinful man have this peace with the perfect sinless creator God when by the very definition of our lives we are born sinners? We are born rebels. We are at enmity with God. So how can we be at peace with God? The only future that we face in our natural state is judgment. He gives the answer in verse 20. Through the blood of the eternal covenant. Through the blood of the eternal covenant. Uh, literally in the blood of the eternal covenant. In accordance with his imperishable blood that was shed to fulfill and accomplish this eternal covenant. This is, of course, a reference to the new covenant. Uh, throughout all of Hebrews, the author has been drawing out the great distinction and the infinite superiority of the new versus the old, of Jesus Christ, and how the new covenant is infinitely superior to the old covenant. The old covenant did have a purpose. It was given by God, but it was always intended to be temporary. There are six biblical covenants in Scripture. Five of them are eternal. The old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, was temporary. And by virtue of this eternal covenant, that is what empowers and blesses and strengthens and validates his salvation of you, that he will indeed keep you to the end. And this is not even a new revelation in the New Testament. For example, when God promised the nation of Israel that he would make a new covenant with them, in Jeremiah 32, verse 40, he said, I will make an everlasting covenant with them, that I will not turn away from them to do them good. Ezekiel 37, 26, also a promise of the new covenant. God says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant, an eternal covenant, a covenant that lasts forever and ever from ages to ages. So, beloved, the great shepherd of the sheep, the one raised from the dead, the man, Jesus Christ. In fact, that's how verse 20 finishes. Jesus, our Lord. So, the way in which sinful man or woman can be at peace with God is because this great shepherd of the sheep who was raised from the dead, God's holy righteous wrath, directed 
rightly towards sinners fell upon him. It was born by Christ, by the man Jesus, by the Messiah. The punishment, beloved, that brought you and me peace with God was upon him. The punishment that brought that peace was upon him. He was despised and afflicted. He was smitten. He was acquainted with grief. He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities so that by his wounds are, we are healed. We are healed. By his wounds we are healed. We are healed spiritually. There's a even future physical healing on the other side of glory, on the other side of eternity, but right here, right now in Christ, we are healed by his wounds, by the wounds of the great shepherd of the sheep who was raised from the dead. And this means that by his blood and by his eternal covenant, he's able to save you to the end and nothing will separate you from the love of God. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. That's the blood of the eternal covenant that God writes of here to you and to me. Well, there's a fifth and final possession, and that is, and this is the possession we have in Christ, that is the equipping to do his will. All of verse 20 is really the subject, and then at the beginning of verse 21 is the verb, equip. The God of peace who raised the great shepherd of the sheep from the dead equipped you, or may he equip you in every good thing to do his will. May he restore you. May he set you right like a broken bone that is set back in place. May he make you complete, bring you to full attention. That's all part of what God's telling you here in this promise of an equipping. Uh, the same word was translated, the word for equip was translated in Luke 6.40 as fully trained. Or 1 Corinthians 1.10, made complete. Or again, Taking in a reference from Peter, in 1 Peter 5.10, Peter says, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to, to his eternal glory in Christ, watch this, will himself perfect you, confirm, strengthen, and establish you, perfect you, equip you for every good work to do his will. Beloved, this promise from God is his promise for a full provision to you and to me for victorious living. Now, when I say that, we can rightly ask the question that that sounds good, but what is victorious living? And the answer is right here in the text. You and I are equipped, look at it, to do his will, to do his will. Now, once we've said that, we can peel the onion back one more layer and say, okay, what is his will? Where is his will found? And beloved, dear friend, the will of God is on the surface of all the pages of Scripture, and the will of God permeates down to every jot and tittle of all of Scripture. That is where we find the will of God and the power that you and I have to do the revealed will of God that we encounter in the pages of Scripture is given to you by the God of peace. And we, from his revealed will, come to understand what is right. But having said that, knowing what is right doesn't mean the same thing as being enabled to do what is right. 
In fact, that was part of the God-intended shortcoming of the Old Covenant. Under the Old Covenant, they could understand and know what was right, but they weren't empowered, the people of God, just through the Old Covenant, weren't empowered to do the will of God. But in the New Covenant, on this side of the resurrection of Christ, we are empowered to do just that. And God doesn't just equip you and then step back and watch uninvolved. God is not like the watchmaker that makes a watch, winds you up, and then walks away in an impassionate fashion and lets you run down. He continues to equip and continues to work in you. Look at what it says in verse 21, continuing on. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. To do and working. To do is on our part. Working is on his part. This is man at work and God at work. Both are true. Now, of course, no one can work out his own salvation. Paul instructed the church in Philippi to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. But no one can work out their salvation unless God has worked in their salvation. So what is being described here is after conversion. We are saved by grace alone through faith alone, through no part of any human effort. Our initial act of conversion, being born again, is God working in us, period. We contribute nothing to that. But once we are born again, once we are adopted into the beloved, now through the indwelling might of the Holy, or through the might of the indwelling Holy Spirit, now we're able to work man at work and God at work. John Murray had these choice words. He said, God works and we also work. And the more persistently active we are in working, the more persuaded we may be that all the energizing grace and power is of God, end quote. Beloved, God, your great shepherd, is keeping you. He's sanctifying you. He is remaking you and renewing you day by day to will and to work, to desire and to act. And beloved, this equipping and working means the God of peace, watch this, is not only able to supply what's necessary, he's also able to repair what's broken. And that's where the rub comes in because on this side of eternity, we are a work in process. We need this equipping, this continual empowering by God. An iron that you would use to iron a shirt is useless unless it's plugged into the outlet. A rose won't gladden the heart with its beauty and fragrance unless it derives its strength from the sun. Or using a biblical illustration from Jesus' upper room discourse, John 15, verse 4. Do you remember Jesus said, As the branch can't bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Man at work, God at work. Now Paul brings out the same synergistic dynamic in Philippians 2, 12, 13, as way of a command, as way of a command. I mentioned this before, Philippians 2, verse 12, he, God commands, Paul commands the Philippian church, God commands you and me, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And then, Finally, beloved, back here in verse 21 of Hebrews 13, the author finishes his benediction with a beautiful short doxology. We 
finish the letter the way we began the letter, by turning our eyes to Jesus, who is the great theme of this entire letter. Through, look at the end of verse 21, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever, amen. Through Christ, he is our way within the veil. He is the one who entered in the heavenly of heavenlies, carrying us with him. And it is to him be the glory forever and ever, our ones tone aon, literally ages to ages. This forever and ever phrase, it's interesting, it appears six times in the epistles and 12 times in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible that takes us into the forever and ever. Or when Paul was writing to young Timothy, in 1 Timothy 1.17, he echoed similar sentiment when he said, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Beloved, that is the echoing song that you and I sing in the here and now, and we will sing forever and ever in his presence. So we are here this Sunday morning leaving the book of Hebrews, but we don't leave the God of the book of Hebrews. We don't leave the Christ of the book of Hebrews. And we can even imagine the author in his mind saying, in a sense, I began this letter with Jesus. I talked about Jesus and taught about Jesus all through the letter, and I now finish with Jesus. And beloved, that is because Jesus, the son of Hebrews chapter 1, gets all the glory for the price he paid And here, he gets all the glory for the power he gives to you and to me. That is his closing benediction, which takes us to his final exhortation, verses 22 to 25. Now, in one way, we might have expected the letter to end with that last amen, that beautiful benediction upon the people, that short doxology and then an amen. I mean, that's that's a perfect place to shut the book. But this uh, author preacher, pastor, has just a few more things he just has to say. And what he is doing here in these final four verses, he's asking the audience to listen carefully and apply diligently. God is commanding you and me, same, to listen carefully and apply diligently. Of what he says here in these four verses, and of course what he says in the rest of the letter, the rest of the word. First, we are to heed the exhortation. Look at verse 22. He says, but I urge you, brethren, I I urge you, parakaleo, I come alongside you, I come alongside you to help and strengthen you, to encourage you. Brethren, 10 times in these 13 chapters, the author has used that affectionate term, brethren. He is author, pastor, preacher, but he is at the same level with the people, with the sheep to whom he is a sheep, just like the sheep to whom he is writing. And we understand that with this brotherhood, that in human affairs, there's a generic brotherhood. There could be a corporate brotherhood, a martial brotherhood, could be an ethnic brotherhood, but infinitely far above those. All of those have a place and may be a great blessing. Infinitely above all of those is the spiritual brotherhood that we enjoy in Christ. And what is it that unites us in Christ? It's not our ethnic background. It's not our social background. It's not our economic background. It is the heavenly calling that we receive from the God of peace. We are spiritual brothers and sisters, holy brothers and sisters. We are soul brothers, the family of God, set apart by God for his own possession. 
And beloved, this whole letter, and especially these closing verses, throbs with pastoral and brotherly affection. And by the way, uh, we don't know whether he did or not, but if the author had used an amanuensis, a secretary, uh, we know the Apostle Paul, in some of his letters, used someone else to write the letter, and then Paul would pick up the quill at the end and put a little handwritten note at the very end. And that was common practice in the writing of that time. All that to say that if the author did use an amanuensis, it's very likely that he would have written these last words in his own handwriting. But we continue. He says, I urge you, bear with, I urge you, brothers and sisters, look at the rest of verse 22, bear with this word of exhortation, bear with this word of encouragement, the same root word as the urging that we had at the very beginning. And the whole point here is this book, densely packed, rich with theology, these verses, those two verses, 20 and 21, are not merely a theological treatise. It is a word of encouragement. It is a word of pastoral affection to the body. Doctrine is received and believed. Exhortation is followed and obeyed. He says, I urge you to bear with this word of exhortation for I have written to you briefly. Briefly? Hebrews is the third, after Romans and 1 Corinthians, Hebrews is the third longest epistle in the New Testament. And of course, I could go off on all kinds of fun rabbit trails about this uh, preacher and briefly what that looks like. But I think what he's saying here is, in the light of the massive things that I could have written on these subjects, the subjects even in those first two verses, that what I'm saying here is brief. It's in view of the momentous topics under discussion. It's the same kind of sentiment the author had back in chapter 5, verse 11, when he said concerning him, concerning Melchizedek, who is pointing towards Christ, we have much to say, but we say only a short amount here. Beloved, the application is heed the exhortation by listening carefully and applying diligently. The second element here is, besides heeding the exhortation, cherish the fellowship cherish the fellowship. And in verses 23 and 24, we have a beautiful picture of personal fellowship, of local fellowship, and of global fellowship. Verse 23, he says, take notice, literally know that our brother Timothy has been released. It's interesting, Timothy is the only New Testament Christian named by name in the letter. Of course, there were godly Old Testament, Old Covenant men and women, many of them named by name in chapter 11, but Timothy is the only New Testament Christian named here. This is Paul's Timothy. Now, Timothy, who was the son of an ethnically Jewish woman, who was a believer in Christ and a Greek father. Uh, the Timothy that first met Paul in Lystra, on Paul's second missionary journey in Acts chapter 16, the same Timothy who played a very important role in the preaching of the gospel in Macedonia and Achaia, uh, the same Timothy that was with Paul in Ephesus on Paul's third missionary journey in Acts chapter 19, who is the Timothy whom Paul encouraged to remain in Ephesus, and then 25 years later was one of two men 
that Paul wrote a pastoral epistle to. Timothy faithfully remained pastoring in Ephesus, and 25 years later, Paul writes 1 Timothy to him. This is the same Timothy, the same Timothy that faithfully ministered to Paul when Paul was in his first Roman imprisonment, and even when Paul wrote the letter to the church at Philippi. But more to the point, Timothy here, this Timothy was well known in Rome for his ministry with Paul, as I just mentioned. He was also well known in Greece, Asia Minor, and in the Promised Land. So the people know this Timothy, and look at what the author says. Our brother Timothy has been released. He's been released from prison. He was in prison, obviously, clearly for his faith. He is a living example of the exhortation the author gave back in verse 3. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves also are in the body. When we looked at that verse, we understood that what he's talking about there is while it's wonderful to have a gospel evangelistic ministry to prisoners, which I would love for us to build beyond what we have already going, the prisoners he's talking about in verse 3 are men and women who are in prison because of their stand for the gospel. And now Timothy is a living example of this. And by the way, this short verse here, this is all we know in biblical writings or extra-biblical writings about the imprisonment of Timothy. And even as I was studying it this week, I was reminded of the tremendous blessing we had in our fellowship last Sunday evening when we had the pre-screening showing of the Essential Church. The documentary was just outstanding. The fellowship was sweet. The Q&A time that we had was excellent. And it's a reminder that whether it's now, but more to the point back then, and, and let me pause there for a second. By way of reminder, when we think of persecution and oppression of Christians, we understand that while things are going downhill rapidly here in America, we know nothing of the level of persecution that countless brothers and sisters in Christ are experiencing right now in other countries around the world and certainly throughout history. We may get there very shortly, and that is the direction we're going, but it is a good reminder. But more to the context here with Timothy in that time, beloved, when tyranny encroaches within the church, we will stand with Christ. And by the way, when Christians are under attack, cultural Christianity fades away. But then back here at the end of verse 23, look at the text. I love it. One more glimpse, one more periscope into this pastor's heart. He says, with whom, Timothy, our brother, with whom, if he comes soon, I will see you. Beloved, a pastor's heart is to be with his people. That's the heart of Justin, of Tim, of Scott. That's the heart of your pastors. We love to be with the people. That is this pastor's heart as well. So that's the personal fellowship. But as we continue on, we now come to local fellowship in verse 24, the context of a local church. He says, greet all of your leaders and all the saints. This is everybody. This describes the common bond. We are all on equal footing at the foot of the cross. And at the same time, God has a God-ordained and God-given order. That's why the author here says, greet your leaders and all the saints. We have him closing with these references to the leaders in verse 7, verse 17, and now in verse 24. He says, remember and imitate them in verse 7. Submit to them and obey them in verse 17. And now he says, greet them. 
This is leadership that is pastoral and accountable and humble. And it is fellowship that is local of everybody together. And then finally, there's fellowship that is global. And this is the international family of God, the worldwide family of God, the same God as in Albania, uh, San Bruno, China, in Switzerland. It's the same God, the same fellowship we had with the international worldwide family of God. That's why he says, verse 24, those from Italy greet you. And that's a very good literal translation from the original Greek. If you want to put it in the vernacular, he's saying the Italians greet you. And what's taking place here, there's one of, one of two options. I, when I opened up the summary introduction to Hebrews, I mentioned at that time, we don't know exactly from where the author's writing and exactly where the congregation is located. Uh, three suggestions for the location of the congregation to whom the author's writing are Jerusalem and the Promised Land, Rome and Alexandria. Now, as we go through this, there's no way the congregation was in Jerusalem in the Promised Land because the author cites from the Greek translation of the Old Testament throughout the book. So clearly the congregation, while they were Jewish, their native language was Greek, so it wasn't Jerusalem. Uh, So then that leaves us with, well, were they in Alexandria or were they in Rome? Uh, One historical aspect that can speak to this is the earliest copies of the book of Hebrews are found in the area of Rome and it wasn't until a couple centuries later that we start seeing manuscript copies coming in Alexandria. So I would lean towards the fact that uh, the author is writing from Italy and he yeah, no, excuse me, he's writing from, from outside of Italy, he's writing from somewhere else outside of Italy to a congregation in Rome and in Italy where they received the letter and then started making copies of it. And he's basically saying, some of the Italians, some of the people from Italy that are with me outside of your country greet you. But enough on that. Now, finally, in conclusion, which by the way, that's the sermon title this morning, in conclusion, And then it'll appear dot, dot, dot. Because it is the end of the book, but the book doesn't end there, so to speak. Finally, beloved, we heed the exhortation. We cherish the fellowship and we stand in grace. Verse 25, grace be with you all. Literally, the grace, the grace with you all. And this is far, far more than a simple formality. This is far more than just a rote final goodbye. This, beloved, expresses the author's heart for that congregation. It expresses God's heart for you and for me. It reminds us right here that God will sustain Santan Bible Church, that it's by grace alone that we stand, that we thrive, that we have victorious living. It's a reminder that God desires something for us. And notice this, God is not desiring something for us that we don't have. We already have the grace of God. And we continue day by day, moment by moment, second by second to rest upon and to receive the grace of God. And God, beloved, wants you and me to apprehend, to comprehend, and to understand this grace more and more. The grace that we've already received and the grace that we continue to receive. He wants us to realize the full blessing of these solid joys and lasting treasures of the grace of God that it would be with you. And
as we would even connect the dots of the will of God all the way back in verse 20 and now the grace of God in verse 25. Beloved, remember, the will of God will never take you. The unrevealed will of God will never, or even the revealed will of God, will never take you where the grace of God can't keep you. That's God's promise to you and to me. So the book of Hebrews, this is what God has said to us and tells us what God has done for us. The revelation and our redemption. It's the presentation of Jesus Christ as our perfectly sufficient great high priest and our responsibility. It is our responsibility to give to the world what the world needs to hear and what the world needs to know, namely is the person that they need to meet, the man Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep. The world needs to meet him. The carpenter from Nazareth who is Lord over all. The prophet, priest, and king. The one who is the sitting ruler and occasionally standing ruler and the faithful intercessor on your behalf and my behalf right here, right now. He's the one who died for all once for all. And because of him, we can enter into the veil, and for him, we go outside of the camp. We go away from our old way of thinking, our old religion, our old passions, our old devotion, to be fully given over to him. To him be the glory and honor forever and ever. Beloved, please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord for the work that you have done on our behalf. Thank you for the gift of salvation that was secured at the cross. Thank you for the promise, Lord Jesus, we have of entering into your presence in eternity forever and ever, and even right here, right now, corporately, individually, in the privacy of our prayer closet, uh, in the, the hurried traffic on our way to work, in the classroom, on our sports team, Lord, help us to worship you in spirit and truth, always behind the veil, offering up a fragrant aroma by doing the work that you've equipped us to do according to your will and for your glory. Thank you, Lord God, for Santan Bible Church. Thank you for our time here through Hebrews. We pray that you would bless us for our joy, for your glory, and that we would be an effective witness to our loved ones that don't know you. It's in your name and for your glory that we pray that we sing. Amen.